so little did I know my um, pronouncement for all of the snow would result in what we have experienced this week. The whole name it, we had a little name and claim experiment apparently last week, and uh, I didn't realize how powerful that would be. And I pray that next time that happens, I will use my powers for good for some of you people who did not really welcome the snow this week. Um, but, uh, but I'll tell you this, it was been, a, for me, at least a good week until at least yesterday when we couldn't get our car out of the driveway because of the glass that we are driving on going up our hill in front of our house. But we're glad you're here this morning. Um, it does, when we have these times, and obviously we have several people who obviously couldn't, are not here this morning for worship. We miss you if you're watching online. We, we, we look forward to having you back next week, but it does remind me of the intimate days of those early days of our church, and it makes me think, just really praise God for that, and think, be thankful for what he's done in our church, it, it, just to look around and go, man, like how sweet the, it is what God has done in this fellowship, and so this is just a, a humble reminder to me, and I'm very, very thankful for our eight years together here as a church, and, um, and I'm glad you're here to join us um, for worship this morning, and again, we miss those who are not here, and we look forward to having you back next week. So, we're back to our series. We're going to try to finish up our series on uh, practicing the king's economy this week and next week. And uh, if you've not been here throughout this, pro this process, uh, this series, since the Jan first Sunday in January, we've been working through this series uh, on how the Bible, or from the Bible, how, of how the gospel transforms our relationship and stewardship with money and wealth. Now, it's a bit different from the normal way in which we preach here, as most of you already know. And if you're new to our church, I want you to understand that one of the ways that we are committed to preaching the Bible here is what we call, in a fancy way, lecto continua, which is a, which is a fancy way of saying preaching exegetically through books of the Bible. Um, that's really where we love to be. It's where I love to be. And I long to be back there with you guys in February when we pick up 1 Corinthians again together. But we also find times in our preaching calendar to do series like what we're doing now, topical in some ways, but really more like practical theology. It's about how does the gospel and our theology inform how we live out our life. And particularly this month, we're looking at how does it, the Bible tell us to live in relationship to money. So it's really a practical theology sermon series as we're kind of walking through these kinds of things. And in this series, what we're trying to, to, to understand is, one, the foundation that God calls us to to build up our relationship with money. We did that for week one. And we said, look, we're made in the image of God. And uh, you can go back and listen to this on your own. And we're built on this creational foundation of how God's created the world, how he's created us. And that informs how we relate to all God's resources he gives us, particularly our money and our wealth. And when we, when we don't start there, we will always end up in some distorted, some kind of toxic relationship with money and wealth in our life, somehow or the other. We said last week um, that then we wanted to explore how does the Bible talk about that relationship with money. And we mentioned last week that we relate to money in one of the bible tells us we relate to money in one of two ways it's either going to be a blessing to us the way god wants it to be or money is going to end up being dangerous for us it can be a promise that builds up gospel fruitfulness in our life or it can be a peril that draws us away from god and his purposes in our life and then you guys know you can apply that same logic to pretty much anything else in your life and we do this so often with so many things. We will either use the things God gives us, the good things God gives us, and they'll either be a blessing towards gospel fruitfulness, or they will be detractions and be perils to our spiritual relationship with God. And, and, and there's no greater example in the scriptures than when it comes to money and wealth. Now today, uh, we're going to explore what kind of spiritual fruit 
we should be looking for if we actually are having the right relationship? What should we be seeing in our lives? And that's why we're going to take a look at Luke 12, 13 through 21 together, at least from a high level. We're not going to really do an exhaustive exposition of it, but use it as a launching point into some, some thoughts about what kind of fruit we should see in our life that, God, that we would see out this parable, perhaps. And so here's the main idea that we're going to kind of center on this morning, and we'll come back to it and hopefully drive this point deeper into our hearts before the morning is over with together. And here it is. The wise steward, or I might, you might say the biblically faithful steward, who relates to money and wealth the way the Bible uh, uh, instructs us, will radiate, will radiate a kind of spiritual fruit that brings glory to God. That's ultimately what it's all about. We want fruit that comes from our life that actually says, God, you get all the glory. I, I, I'm going to steward all the resources you give me, whether it's my family, my, my money, uh, my relationships, my job, whatever it may be, all of it should bring glory to you. So that's the kind of spiritual fruit we're looking for. So when we are looking at our lives, one of the ways we'll be able to tell whether that we're relating to money well enough is when that's the ultimate fruit of it, is it brings glory to God. And so I think out of this text this morning, and I'm, again, I'm doing this loosely, so give me a little bit of room to kind of work here this morning, if you don't mind. I want to just kind of look at some three big things that come out of this um, relationship we have with money. And, um, and I'm sorry, the fruit that should happen when we have a relationship with money, that's, that's actually the way God wants us to have it. So let's just take a look at the text for just a minute. We're going to look at it from a very high level, um, and maybe it'll be helpful for you to kind of use it and understand where we're going to go. So in verses 13 through 15, we've already read it together, uh, of chapter 12, we see that there's a problem. There's a dispute uh, between two brothers, probably the elder brother who is, gets the majority of the inheritance from his father, and then there would be some that would distribute out to the younger siblings. And so we have this relationship that's happening here, and it's causing problems because apparently the father has passed away, and now there's a dispute over his inheritance. And so he asks Jesus to tell his brother hey, be generous, be, you know, give me my portion of the inheritance for whatever reason. He, perhaps he's being selfish with it. Perhaps he's not giving him a share. We don't really know all the details here, and it's really not the main point of the text. And so the main idea, though, then Jesus' response is, who made me an arbiter of you? And then he goes into what he feels like the main issue is with this young man and perhaps even his older brother. And the main issue is covetousness. There's something probably in the younger son's relationship with his brother, that he's kind of desiring what his brother has that he doesn't have. It's covetousness. And so if you think about what covetousness is, the, main, the broadest definition we can have with that is idolatrous relationship or desire for that which we do not have. An idolatrous relationship or desire for that which we do not have. And that's a great, great definition and a very simplistic definition, but it, really there's a bit more to it than that. And so here's kind of my definition that I want to use, and I think it's actually teased out here in Jesus' parable. Actually, covetousness is the idolatrous attention placed on the immediate desires and comforts of others in which we do not have that cause us to be distracted, here's the key part, from eternal matters. That's really what covetousness does. It distracts us from eternal matters because we're focused on our own wants and needs and desires. And we make our own need, wants, needs, and desires the, the, the kind of the end goal. And so the reason the younger brother perhaps wants to depart is he wants, he wants a certain kind of lifestyle that wants to come out of that. And he's saying, Jesus, hey, you, you've been doing all these miracles, Jesus. You know what would be a great miracle for you? It's maybe I get my part and I can have the life that I want. And so Jesus says, look, covetousness is the real issue here. 
And so the big principle here is covetousness, but, it's, but there's a principle under the principle that Jesus outlines that life's true meaning doesn't come with the uh, abundance of possessions. That life's true meaning, life's true purpose, life's true satisfactions in our life, whatever you may call them, they do not come with the abundance of possessions, whether that's money or materialism. They are not the end. And unfortunately, that's probably what Jesus is dealing with here, is that you are considering the, your inheritance as that's what you've been living for, is I want to get my piece of the pie here. And we'll see shortly that money and wealth are parts of the pathway God uses in our life to shape us so that we live for things that are bigger than ourselves, but they are indeed not the end in of themselves. So Jesus shares a parable to continue driving home this point. Let's just kind of pick up in verse 16. And he says... Um, yeah, get there. He says there, and he told them this parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have not, I have now, I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, on the face of it, it seems like, okay, he's being wise. He's seen an abundance. He's seen um, some flourishing in his business endeavors, his land, and that's a good thing. We would all say that's good if we invest wisely. He's probably been wise and a good steward of his property and his possessions. But there's something larger going on that we see in the text that I think Jesus is wanting to address here in this man's life. This man was so rich that he overflowed from his present reality. So he had these barns already. Presumably he put these barns and storehouses together so that he could store away his stuff so that he could have needs, which is not a bad thing to provide for your immediate needs and to make sure that you're wise and that you can have your family's needs met and, and whatnot. That's not necessarily the issue here. It's not the issue that he actually has large possessions of it or that he's been plentiful with it. But it's the way he deduces what he should do next. And so he starts to have this inner dialogue with himself. Self, this is what I'm going to do. Right? You ever been there? Self, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger storehouses. And he's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. Soul, I have more than enough stored up for years. It's like that's been the reason he's worked all of his life. Just to make sure he was safe. Just to make sure that his needs were met just so that he could live with comfort and relative ease. And so he's, he's speaking to his soul. He's, he's using these riches as a way to assuage his soul's fears. He's using this, this plentiful thing that God had given to him. All good things come from God, amen? But he's using these things in a way to actually not rest in God, not glorifying God, but actually to do the antithesis so that he might have some kind of comfort within himself that life's going to be okay if I just have enough in the storehouses. And maybe we do that in our life. We just got to keep packing away, keep packing away. We work diligently because when I get to, you know, retirement age, I want to make sure I can live out my last 20 or 30 years. And that's, again, there's nothing wrong with wise stewardship and putting away and putting away for retirement. In fact, I think the Bible would commend it in other places. But there's a larger issue here, and it's what he does with a very well-worn statement. He says, soul, you have more than enough stored up for yourself for many years. Relax. And you've all heard it before, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. It's a really well-worn 
a, a phrase from where? Ecclesiastes, from Solomon, the great wise counsel, yeah? But he's not actually using that text properly. He's actually misapplying it. He's actually twisting it in some ways. He's, he's saying eat, drink, and be merry, but really he's not actually doing any of those things. Because what Paul, what we'll see here in just a second as we read um, Ecclesiastes in our first point, he's, he's actually not doing any of that. He's actually just using, he's just working to live. He's saving to survive. And God doesn't want us to live like that. There is a place in our lives where we would live with enjoying the good bounty God has given us. And so what does God do? What does God say? What does God pronounce about this man's assessment of his life? And we see it. It's pretty, uh, pretty indicting. Fool. That's what God's assessment is of it. This man's a fool. He's worked hard. He's saved well. But he's living for the wrong purposes. Fool. And it looks like he kind of pairs off with the conversation he has with his soul. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, he's saying your, your soul cannot find its ultimate rest and satisfaction and safety and comfort in your plenty. You're actually not doing anything that will cause you to eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Whose will they be? In other words, one day you're going to die. And you're living for all these things that will end up in a landfill somewhere. Or you're going to have someone who's going to take all of your inheritance and perhaps squander it. Maybe they'll use it wisely, but you don't know that, and there's nothing you can do to control that. And you're living for all for these means. So you see what God's getting at. Foolish use of money. And God says, your soul gives, it must give an account to these things even right now. And he says, your money will end up in the uh, trash heap. Your possessions will end up in the landfill. And so there's a danger. He says right there, laying up treasures for today and not living for the eternal riches that are to come. That's what he says, essentially. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So the issue is not about being rich. The issue is not about having plenty. It's not about being industrious. None of those things are what Jesus is confronting here at all. Not at all. But it's the kind of way in which we approach our money when we don't have the foundation of that approach being rich towards God. Right? We're not rich towards God. So out of this text this morning, I just want to talk for a few minutes from about three main, uh, what I'm going to call fruits, or at least some, some ways in which we go, we can learn from this man's distorted view of what he sees about his wealth and how we might relate to money as we're relating to money the way God wants us to, what should we be seeing in our life that actually shows us, yeah, we actually are relating to money in a way that actually glorifies God. And I think the first element that we want to see here is that there's repentance. That's the first one. That we will see repentance in our life, but namely we'll see repentance in our life on a daily basis, on a regular basis, of that meism, right? Me, it's me, about me, or another fancy word, presentism, only focusing on the now, this moment. And so what meism and presentism does, they usually are revealed in two ways that I want to talk about just for a second. And when we're repenting of meism and presentism, 
we'll start to see that actually money doesn't have a grip over our souls and our fear over where we are and where we're standing is not actually being, being, uh, is not actually, uh, uh, being about me and right now, but about actually God and his glory. Here's two ways, meism and presentism, and I'm using that in term, I'll, I'll say it several times, are revealed in our lives in various ways. Materialism. Materialism. They, 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 we don't recognize that ultimately the things that we gather and possess and that they actually eventually up, end up in the landfill. Or they end up in someone else's possession who may or may not use it wisely. Because our days are numbered in this life. And so behind the rich man's reasoning, as I mentioned a minute ago, is this faulty, twisted wisdom of Ecclesiastes that he's doing. So I just want to read Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 through um, 26, and see if you can see why there's a problem with the way he's um, deducing his, uh, what he should do with his money and what he should do with his wealth. And here's what Solomon deduces about toil or all the work that we do and all the things that we endeavor to do that we think are so important. He says, I hated all my toil. That's a pretty, that sounds depressing, doesn't it? I hated everything I was doing. I hate all my pursuits. That's his assessment of all when it's all said and done. So, hey, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you, right? Uh, whatever you're going to do this year, you, you, no, that's not what he's getting at. But he's assessing when we do things in a way that actually doesn't give God the glory, doesn't really rest in God. So let's keep on seeing. You'll see what I'm talking about. I hate all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it all to a man who will come after me. By the way, his son. Right? So he's, he, this, is not in, in, you know, this is not innocuous. Like he's, he's talking about the kids who are going to come behind him, who, by the way, would defy the kingdom. The kingdom would split because it's after Solomon, yeah? So he knows this. He sees what's coming down the road. So I'm going to leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. He was a fool. Right? Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man, um, I'm sorry, what has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also a vanity. So he's saying, look, if he's just, if he's just working to acquire and accumulate, and ultimately to leave it to someone who may squander it, this is just has no meaning, has no purpose. And so here's what he says in verse 21. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This is also a vanity and striving after a win. So here's what, Paul, what, what Solomon's trying to get at. It's not the reasoning that we see here in this rich man. He's saying, actually, your toil, you should work hard, but your toil should be given to the joy of the Lord and you should enjoy the good bounty God has. And there's a bounty and wisdom in how we then use that, those, those fortunes so that God gets the glory. And so there's always a balance, isn't there? There's always a balance between 
living our life in a wise way, saving, but also enjoying presently the things God gives us, but also uh, put in setting for and investing in the future generations behind us and giving to God's purposes, giving to the church. There's always these, these ways in which you and I must assess and stand before the Lord and let His Holy Spirit lead and guide us. So this rich man's assessment misses the mark. Why? Because materialism for him is the goal. Just acquiring it. And if he has he can acquire it, well, then I'm just going to tear down my barns and just keep on acquiring more. And I'm going to keep on, and I'm just going to live, just going to live so that I can just be safe, happy, and comfortable. Materialism, though, is not the end of what Solomon is getting at. Materialism distorts the good gifts God gives. And Solomon knows that. But he's looking to them for means, as means to an end. I mean, as, as an end itself. And this is sometimes, if we're not careful, this is how we deal with our, our fortunes. They're the end. We, we make all of it. It's like, I'm, I'm here to save up a certain amount of money for maybe a particular kind of house I want to live in, or, or a, a car, or a certain kind of level of retirement. Again, all can be wonderfully given to the Lord, but they're not the end themselves, are they? They're not meant to be the end themselves. We're meant to take all the good things God gives us as image bearers and invest them in such a way, both into the growing and raising our families and investing in our families and providing for our families, but also investing in the, the work of redemption that God has had through his people, the church. And this is what God wants his people to do. So the, the, the principle imbibed from Solomon is not just storing up riches for comfort, ease, and peace, but, but really... The whole process of the toil is enjoyment in the goodness of God who is with his people and there's actually something meaningful in the work that they're doing and the wealth that they're collecting and the plenty that they have so that at the end there's a balance. There's a balance between how we enjoy, save, spend, give in a way that is God-centered. That's one of the ways we will see growth in our life if we know that we have a check on materialism, a check on are these, these things that are just, are they there for us or are they there in such a way that we are bringing glory to God with them? But I think there's a second thing here that in meism and presentism that it's really important that we recognize. And I think it's something we see a lot more today than we probably did maybe in, in generations past. It's experientialism. Are you with me on this? Think about what we see, like the, the social webs, right? We get out there and everyone's just got to be like, I got to have the ultimate experience and we're out there just talking about it. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with taking good vacations and we share our pictures on our vacations and, and all those kinds of things. But, what, but the point is, is that we end up kind of having this kind of hyper focus on experiences, don't we? The kind of experience that we, we have to have it now. And if we don't have it now, we might miss out on something, Right? But, but, but it misses the grand point, and it also misses the point that this guy who's collecting all these things up in bigger storehouses is missing. That this moment is not all that there is. This moment is not all that there is. And unfortunately, this is how a lot of people, especially in our, our kind of Western context, um, global Western context, live. We don't see that this now moment is actually connected to a bigger moment beyond this moment. It's not connected to eternity. And so we, they live as if, at times, as if life isn't going anywhere. And so they may say and believe, we may say and believe that we believe in something bigger than ourselves, but look at the practical way in which we look and use the things God gives us. Therefore, now, we live in this kind of tyranny of the moment impulse, 
where if it doesn't happen now, I risk not having the life that's the picture life. And I, may, I risk not being able to give my kids. And this is something we do all the time, right? We do it all the time if we're honest. It's the tyranny of the moment. It's what Paul Tripp says in his wonderful book. We end up loading up all our hopes, fears, and dreams in the here and now. And everything must happen. Everything must be experienced. And everything must be possessed right now. Um, we watch House Hunters because we like to be discouraged. Um, uh, but uh, it's amazing to me how these young couples go in to buy their first house and the unreasonable things that they expect in those new houses. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you want to go, I just scream at the screen going, boy, I wish you knew what I knew from 18 years ago after being married 18 years. Like it's, and I, listen, I came into life thinking the same things. You probably did too. But everything's not about right now. Not everything's about having your best life in this moment. It's just not. No, experientialism is kind of built off some faulty ways in which we, uh, questions that we have through our head, right? It's like, um, what if I marry the wrong person? Or what if I um, take the wrong job? Or live in the wrong area? Or what if I... Um, can't uh, provide for my children or my, my children don't become all-stars because we've thrown thousands of dollars into sports, right? It's living with these kinds of ideas that are just not helpful. They live in such a way, it's like if I don't, and you see this a lot in, in, in people who have more affluence, like people who will just buy their ways into Harvard, you know, you've seen that? Because if, if my kid doesn't have that, they won't get the kind of life that we want from them. Now, that's an extreme level, but bring it, down to our, bring it down to us humble people here, right? What do we do the same way, that's kind of a similar way? We live everything about, what if my kid doesn't get in the right college? What if my kid doesn't get in college at all? You know? Like, that's not a healthy way to live life now. Yes, be, be wise. Have, call, your, call your kids to work, have a good work ethic in school and part-time jobs and sports. Those are... Character builders, you know, something that we try to talk about with ours as much as we can, but they're not mean, they're not just there so that you can have this ultimate best life. We live by, for the experience. And what ends up happening when we don't let these, when we let these questions rule our hearts, it crowds our minds and prevents us from living with peacefully, living with rest in our hearts because ultimately we don't believe in God's goodness, do we? We say we do, but do we really? Why? Because we're ultimately letting fear and anxiety rule our hearts. We're letting our feelings, our expectations not be, um, be interrupted by the goodness of God. And so we sit up in bed at night, minds racing with all these questions that we cannot answer and we're not supposed to. They're not the end and then when it's all said and done. We're simply not meant to live this way. If we were to go over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, here's what we are told. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart. This is the way we're meant to live. To live with eternity in our hearts, thinking about that life is more than this present moment, and that we're created for long living, not short living. That we're created for restful, contented, and patient life. We'll talk more about that here in a, few, in a little bit. And so when we are repenting of meism and presentism, we're, we're saying that we don't believe that there's a utopia now. 
We don't believe that there's paradise now, that everything's about the now. And what does this have to do with our money? Well, I think it has everything to do with our money. Because what we'll do with our money is one of some extreme things. We'll either just be miserly with it because we just want to save for ourselves and we're done for that rainy day, or we'll overspend, unwisely spend, and um, because we've forgotten that life is much bigger than ourselves. It's way bigger than ourselves. And we've forgotten that it's much longer than the life in which we live right now. And what ends up happening in the end is we, we don't live like kingdom agents who save, give, and spend like kingdom agents. We save, spend, maybe perhaps with a scarcity ethic. It's not just wasting the money and blowing the money, but sometimes we live with a scarcity ethic. And can you imagine what a scarcity ethic does to a church? Well, you end up just giving just so the budget gets taken care of. But you don't give with this kind of sense of like, I'm on mission with God, right? And that's ultimately what we're going to get at next week is some of how it plays out in the way in which we carry out the mission here at Grace Church or whatever church you're part of or whatever church you'll be part of in the future. Like it produces churches if we live with a scarcity ethic with this kind of paradise now or I got to make sure everything's taken care of right now. It just leads to this. I don't really know how to embrace the mission God has called me on because ultimately I'm just too scared to invest in it, to be part of it. It's, it's because it's rooted in what? An eternal amnesia. It's rooted in an eternal amnesia where the real issue is, which is really the real issue Jesus is pointing to in this, par- in this parable. This, this rich man had eternally amnesia. He lived for the moment, he lived for the day, he lived for the immediate future, but he didn't live for the glory of God. He said, eat, drink, and marry, but he was twisting that in such a way that he lost sight of what really eat, drink, and marry meant, which is bring to enjoy God. Enjoy God's good bounty, yes, and to, and to be part of his story. Now, for repenting of meism and presentism, what will end up happening is, number two, we will pursue a living out of an eternal mindset. We will live out an eternal mindset. And what I mean by that is there's several ways in which eternity impacts how we live. And I'm just going to run through a few of them pretty rapidly here for the next moment. If we're living with an eternity mindset, it we, remember, we are reminded that eternity, eternity enlarges our concerns. It changes the way we look at what's important. It releases us, excuse me, from a self-oriented approach to our money. Eternity reorients us to bigger realities than the here and now. Right now can only cause us to focus on our needs, wants, and desires and feelings. But we are not in charge, brothers and sisters. You're not in charge of your money. You're not in charge of your relationships. You're, but, but God's in charge. And God says what we should do with those. Life doesn't belong to us. God rules all of life. Therefore, money and riches bestowed upon us are not ours to manipulate or use any way we want to. I mean, think about maybe perhaps how we might get raises. And maybe we've already thought about the raise you may have gotten this new year for 2024 or one they'll get later on in the year. Um, and, and, and you know what? I've fallen into the trap sometimes of spending the raise before I even get it. Have you been there? Right? You know a bonus is coming and you're going to, yeah, I've been there. And it's, it's not good. Because ultimately it's not giving God glory for what he has given. And we need to think through the lenses of how God wants us. There's larger concerns. Second way eternity changes our mindset is it alters our perspective. It reshapes our money from a destination mentality. Like money's not the end or a certain amount of money or a certain type of lifestyle is not the end. But really money is about preparation. It's, a, it's part of the journey. 
It's, we need a preparation mentality. Again, Paul Tripp says it this way, life is not a destination, but it's a preparation for eternal destination. And that certainly includes our money, does it not? Or our wealth. This is why we tend not to choose, uh, and I can speak this for myself, we don't choose brown rice and broccoli at, at dinner, and we eat, the, we eat the nice juicy hamburger all the time, right? Because we don't have, like sometimes you just don't have, and look, you can enjoy the burger. I enjoy more than a few burgers in my life, Yeah. But the reality is, is that we, we don't, we, we think of just the moment, and we always say, well, what if I don't get this moment back? Well, sometimes we got to think with the long road in mind. This is how we should deal with our money. Eternity also reveals real spiritual satisfaction. It turns the whole if I only had kind of mentality that goes through our minds and rules our minds carefully. And look, surely... The world, physical world, should bring and does bring some enjoyment and can be used for our enjoyment. Like we should go enjoy the beaches. We should go enjoy the mountains. These are God's gift to us. We should, we should enjoy uh, feasts. We see this in the Bible and having, and, and what, the, what uh, the English would say, making merry during the holidays, right? We should do those kinds of things in such a way that they bring glory to God. But it, what happens is if we pre- treat our present circumstances as the ultimate end, we end up not being satisfied with the goodness of God, do we? And we manipulate things. We manipulate our spiritual life until we get what we want. We'll blame God or we'll blame someone else as to why we haven't gotten what we want. And we'll just justify our own simple responses to the circumstances in which we live because ultimately we're not experiencing the life that we want to have. And you can apply that to a whole myriad of things beyond money and wealth, can't you? I know I can eternity frees us from the lie that satisfaction can be found outside of anything but knowing God and being known by God. That's where satisfaction begins and ends. Knowing God and being known by God. That's the only way we can think about money. It's the only way that actually makes life satisfying because at the end of the day, when that's the ultimate end, all the things God gives us will be used for that end. Eternity guides our investment. We saw this last week in Matthew 6. I won't go through it again, but we saw it in his prayer of the model and while we're reading the, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer right now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It, it, it helps us understand that's what we're investing in. That's how we use our finances in a way to do that. We saw it in his teaching on treasure. And he says, invest in the treasure in heaven, not on treasures of the world. It's not wrong to plan for necessities. It's not wrong to plan for retirement. It's not wrong to have health care. It's not wrong for any of these kinds of things. But when that's all we ever do, now that's wrong. That's when we're starting to focus more on ourselves and not God. No, we want the other part of the, of the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Only then can we live with thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And only then can we store up treasures in heaven. Eternity clarifies our values. Eternity allows us to be alerted to what is truly important. It's the real challenge of meism, isn't it? Meism is misappropriated valuation on life. Let me say that again. Meism is the misappropriation of the value or valuation of life. A few years ago, Amanda, when we got married, she brought a little red 98 Jeep. She still loves that Jeep probably more than anything we've ever owned. And I, it ended up coming down to me when we bought our first minivan, and she loved that. Um, no, not really. We're hoping that doesn't have to happen again. But we had this little red Jeep, and I loved, we loved it, but it started to kind of show wear and tear. The engine was, and we started having some problems. We thought it probably needed a new engine overhaul. 
And so I put it up for sale. And I put it on Marketplace. And I was like, okay, no one's going to want this thing. They're going to have to put a whole lot of engine work into it. So I threw it on, face, on, on Facebook Marketplace. This is back when we were still at Providence. Because it was seriously parked in the back of the church's parking lot because I, I couldn't get it started. And uh, I put it on there for $800. Little did I know that I was going to get into a bidding war. Or a bidding war was going to break out for this little Jeep. And I ended up selling it for $2,500. I misvalued this red Jeep because someone didn't care about the engine. They just wanted the body that was in great shape, and they were going to throw another engine on it, and then they were going to jack it up and do all they're going to do with that, right? But it meant more to someone else. And this is kind of what we do sometimes um, with the way in which we live when we don't have an eternal mindset. We're misvaluing life. We're misvaluing the role of money and wealth in our life, and we're selling it way too short in the way God wants us to view it. And then last, God, eternity ensures us of grace and hope. We're guaranteed a place of God in eternity. We know this. And we can be assured of the God's sustaining and continuing grace with his people throughout the twists and turns of our life, whether you have much or you have little in your life. Between the already now of Jesus coming the first time and the, his future return again, we will live with, in this life with all those twists and turns, but we will not live without his presence in that spiritual battle. That's ours. Jesus' presence, his Holy Spirit with us in the middle of all that, and that includes every area of our life under the sun, including our wealth. Our hopes and needs and wants, desires are met at the cross of Christ. And that gives us hope because what happens? And here's, friends, just listen to me. I talked about this in the first week because I know I've lived with so much guilt when it comes to money at different times in my life. Like, I, we will get money wrong sometimes. But there's hope for that. Why? Because the hope is not in my track record, is it? It's in Christ's track record. It's in what he has done and what he accomplishes with it. And so this side of eternity, sad to say, I'm probably going to get money wrong again at times. I'm going to do something selfish with it. But every time I wander away, God will gently correct course with me because I'm his. And you're his if you're a believer in Jesus. And he'll course correct for you. You don't have to live under the tyranny of your past mistakes. You don't have to live under the tyranny of your future mistakes with money. You can certainly continue to come back through faith and repentance, submit everything to the Lord, and the Lord will kindly and gently call you to deeper faith and rest in Him. That's what we are guaranteed with. And so that then leads me into the third part before we finish up our time this morning. If we're repenting of meism and presentism, and if we're living with an eternal mindset, we'll, we'll see growth in our spiritual character, and we'll do it specifically in a couple of ways. We'll see this cycle begin to form in our life. When, when, we, when we live with fear or selfishness with our money, we're living because, that way because we're not thankful. Right? I know that's my case for me. I'm not thankful for the things God's given me because I just always want more. I always want someone else to be, whatever it may be, right? We'll grow in thankfulness. And as we're growing in thankfulness, what happens as a result of that? We'll grow in contentment. We'll love what God gives us and we'll be happy with it. Not just thankful for it, but we'll be happy in it. Then that leads us to patience because we'll have those little goals. I have little goals on my sheet for the next couple years. We, we, we got a big trip we want to do in a couple years. And we're going to start saving money responsibly for that trip, hopefully, Lord willing. I can be patient. I don't have to have it right now. 
I can have those experiences. I can have those things with my family, but I can do it in a patient, responsible, God-fearing, God-centered way. And when I'm patient, when I'm thankful and I'm contented and I'm patient, it will give way to some compassion, won't it? I'll start to love others and see others the same way that, that the Lord sees me, and I'll live with that way, and it'll ultimately lead me to serve them and be a part of and invest in a way. And that's the cycle, isn't it? That's just a cycle. That's the spiritual character cycle that we want to see in our lives. We'll grow in fighting those idols that often wage war in our hearts that we hunger for, and we'll, we'll progressively see realignment in who we are in Christ. We'll progressively see alignment in our core identity day by day, and sometimes it'll be ugly and messy, but day by day we'll see progressive realignment in who we are, who God has made us to be. And we'll, start, we'll stop seeing the bigger problem in our life when it comes to money and wealth as either I don't have enough or, um, or, or, or I, don't, I haven't budgeted well enough or I failed too many times that I can't see straight. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is our hearts. And that's what we're going to see is our hearts being revealed and, 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 and resting in the goodness of God. Because at the end of the day, and here's the big crescendo, we will grow in seeing that God's goal with our money is generosity. Why? Because he's generous with us. Like ultimately, at the end of the day, we live a life of generosity because we get the privilege of being from creation forward a part of God's grand plan as his stewards, and we get to be a part of his generous campaign of even creating in the first place, and we are also the recipients of his generosity by his son's unmerited work on our behalf. God is God-glorifying really uh, fruitfulness in our life, in our relationship to money and wealth, is only possible if we recognize that God's goal for our lives is radical generosity that's rooted in His radical generosity towards us. He created us, He called us, and He made us image bearers. And even after sin and rebellion, He came and sought us, and He brought us home, and He made it, made it possible that we might have a relationship with us through His Son, Son Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I cannot think of a better way to set up the Lord's Supper than that. I mean, Justin's going to come up here in just a second, and he's going to lead us to the Lord's Supper, but that's, that's it. We come to the table not because we're worthy, but because God is generous. And we then relate to our money in a way that repents of me-centered living, that focuses us on eternity, and begins to build that spiritual character in us that trusts God and loves God, and delights in God, not because of what he's, like, ultimately what he's done for us in all these little side parts of our life, but because he's ultimately been generous to us, the fact that we don't live in eternity, a Christless eternity, right? And so with that in mind, I'm just going to offer up a prayer, and Justin's going to come, and our team's going to come, and prepare for us to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus, this morning, thank you for your word. We think about these parables that you gave your church for us to think about. They show us sometimes who we really are, sometimes the, the less desirable parts of who we are. And, uh, and Father, we just ask that you would be glorified in, our, in, in, a, in how we might respond to this with whole hearts, bring our whole selves, bring all the messiness and set it before you and repent, believe and trust and, 
find renewed hope for the way in which we relate to all affairs of life, but particularly this issue of wealth. And so that, Lord, we might be a part of your mission, a part of your bigger plan in ways that we could never possibly imagine. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you in preparing now ourselves for the table. It's in Christ's name. Amen.